In today's episode, I get to chat with Marina Gearhart, an eating disorder therapist who is fantastic. We cover everything from what makes people susceptible to developing disordered eating and eating disorders, why it can be so hard to distance yourself from diet culture, and some practical ways to do so. And we'll also dig in to how valid food and body distress can be, even if you don't have a formal eating disorder diagnosis. This piece in particular, I think, would have been so helpful for me to hear when I was younger and doubting if I was struggling enough, basically, to address my food and body obsession. So if you don't have a formal diagnosis, this episode can absolutely still be for you, and it actually might really help you see how working on your relationship with food and body is even more important than you might give it credit for. I really hope you enjoyed this conversation and definitely check out the show notes because Marina gave us a ton of really great resources that we linked up there as well. Welcome to the podcast, Marina. I am so excited to have you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. Of course. So if you don't mind, just tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and kind of how you've ended up doing the work you do professionally so they can get a picture of where you've been. Certainly. So I am an eating disorder therapist. I work at a residential treatment facility in Medford, Massachusetts, which is just outside of Boston. I came to my work on a, a long, windy path, but I grew up as a dancer for 18 plus years, um, went to undergrad and studied both dance and psychology and was really finding the connection of both the mind and the body together and then found myself observing both my own relationship with food and my body and also with friends and witnessing their relationship with these things and found myself really interested in the body image space, which as I started kind of digging and learning a little bit more school and through my grad program of becoming a therapist, I found myself very passionate about the eating disorder space. So that's how I've arrived here today. And I show up both on social media as well with looking at relationship with personal trainers and how they work with their clients and body image in that space, as well as posting a lot about anti-diet, talking about eating disorder prevention, recovery in that space. So I like to kind of have it involved in just about every lane of my life, but I'm really glad to be here to talk about all of it. I love that. And I think I knew a decent amount of your story because of us having collaborated before and stuff like that. But yes. I think it's just really neat how it started out for you as, you know, you had a personal connection to it. You saw a need to just get curious and dig into certain facets. And then it just kept kind of morphing, um, which is really indicative of like you being in a space that matters a lot to you and that you have a lot of presence and ability to impact people in. And I remember when we did that, workshop with the cycling studio I was working at where I like given what I do with clients I felt like I had a pretty good handle on that stuff that I was probably more mindful about language around body and exercise and like that punishment side of things than most but I'm still left with like oh there's so much more I can do here and when I actually resigned from that studio recently I had a writer message me who I didn't have a super in-depth relationship with, who told me like the way you speak to what we're doing in class and bodies and all of that has completely shifted how I view these things. 
I remember being blown away. I was like, it's not even something I'm actively like focusing on anymore, but clearly I absorbed so much yeah. from that work we did. <laughs> I'm so oh. glad that 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 makes me so happy. And, you know, for people who are listening to this podcast, I think take a notice and take stock of how you feel when you leave a workout class. Yes. Think about maybe some of the language that you heard in there. And that can be so indicative of of how the class went and how that trainer or teacher or instructor, whoever you're working with, how they lead the class and what's important to them and how they make you feel safe. And so I think, yeah, and I think it's so powerful that you had that experience with someone that you didn't even have maybe like a deeper connection with, like some of maybe your other clients you did. Yeah. Or like someone that we don't know is having a hard time with that stuff, who's, you know, beating themselves up for how they show up or if they work hard enough or what they look like that day. Like, we may not even know that we're interacting with people like that in our day-to-day life, whether you're, you know, a fitness professional, a therapist, a dietitian or not, yeah. right? Even if yeah. you're just existing in that group fitness space with other people, it's just a really good reminder of you don't know what they have going yeah. on and we can always be more supportive and mindful about how we speak. So yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, given what you do now, right, your work in like eating disorders, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about what you see as some kind of like big pillars that tend to make people more susceptible to eating disorders. Because I do think there is sometimes right a misconception around yeah. who may be vulnerable or who may be struggling. Yeah, I I do think that I'll kind of start with this idea of the stigma around eating disorders and kind of thinking that, oh, well, the eating disorders come from like perfectionism or someone just wanting to be skinny or wanting to be thin or just maybe some perfectionism in sport wanting to, which, you know, is absolutely something that could make someone more susceptible to an eating disorder is is the intensity of, of sports. Um, I think that's kind of what I, when I entered the field several years ago, had this idea of what it was and now kind of being within this space for longer I'm like wow there's so much more to this and so some of those things we'll start with like health conditions I think is one of the major ones that we don't necessarily think of that actually cause weight loss so for example I had a client with past like GI problems I was eventually diagnosed with Crohn's disorder and disease and she ended up losing a, a significant amount of weight because of this disorder now she was not previously kind of stressed out about body image or her appearance. But then shortly after becoming really sick with Crohn's, she was getting a lot of compliments, not just from friends, but from friends' parents. She would share with me about her smaller body and telling her how great she looks. Meanwhile, she's really struggling with the disease. And that was kind of the onset of her eating disorder because as she started to kind of normalize in her health issues and find the medication that works, she was starting to restore the weight that she had lost and realizing, oh, wait a minute, but everyone said I look better in this body. And so that was kind of an onset for her. So I think there are several health conditions and some that are not even medically related, right? So someone may be struggling with pretty severe depression and it makes it difficult for them to get out of bed and actually prepare food for themselves. And then again, a similar thing that can happen is becoming used to a sicker body. I think another large pillar is trauma. This is one that I think is not really talked about as much when it comes to eating disorders in like mainstream media or even on social media. But a lot of times, whether it be, you know, a trauma like within the family or whether it be a sexual assault, whether it be, you know, something that happened within the family being witness to certain things, oftentimes the brain 
is trying to make sense of that and trying to keep the body safe and think that the ways that it's trying to keep it safe are harmful, but it doesn't know that, right? So it's like, okay, shrink the body, make the body smaller, and this will protect you. This will keep you safe. So it starts these kind of like harmful narratives in in our mind. And sometimes it isn't even directly related to the body or body image. So that one I think is a really challenging one. And oftentimes in my work, end up doing trauma work and see the resolution to the eating disorder through trauma work rather than kind of our standard, just like anorexia protocol in terms of treatment. So we have kind of health conditions, we have trauma. Something I mentioned was also like isolation or things like COVID. I think being isolated away from others, trying to find control, I think is a big piece that both relates to the perfection of ism in sport, trying to find control after trauma. When things feel out of control in our lives, we try to find control in something tangible. Oftentimes the body gets the brunt of that. So a lot of times we try to manipulate and control, change our body, make it smaller, trying to become more fit in a particular way, um, controlling our intake of food because that feels like we are doing something. So again, it's that like misplaced kind of control that we're looking for. I think another one large, large piece that's pretty obvious, I think in this field is social media and diet culture. I think when we have these narratives like constantly being reinforced to us, it absolutely makes us more susceptible. I think when you go to the doctors and your doctor is telling you that, you know, a way to help your health condition or that you need to lose weight because your BMI falls in a particular category, that can be harmful, right? This can also make us more susceptible because we have these like concrete things in front of us, information that we're receiving from medical professionals, from people online that we kind of deem as professionals. So those are the other things that I think certainly would make us more susceptible and do make us more susceptible to eating disorders. And once they latch on, they're really sticky to peel off. And I don't think people really understand the the gravity of them or how long treatment is. I have a lot of clients come in who are like, you know, after three or four weeks, like I'll be able to leave. And it's it's a rude awakening to to recognize that some of these things that made them more susceptible really stuck. And, and it's not just a, a three to four week kind of process of, of recovery. So. So those are a couple of the ones that I I would name, and I'm sure there are certainly more that I'm missing. (laughs) Yeah, but I think, I mean, from what you said, you're showing there's a lot of variety there. It's not just what people who are not as close to this space might assume, which is they want it to be thin or something like that. There's, There's so much more to it and so many more, basically like in routes, right, entry points. Um, what do you think? I love what you said at the end there. Well, I don't love it, right? Because I wish it weren't so sticky, but like, what do you think once those ideas kind of take root, what makes them so hard for people to separate and distance themselves from? Yeah, I don't know if this thought fully encompasses the answer to that, but I think we as, and I say this to clients a lot of the times with some of those like really sticky thoughts, I don't think as humans, we like to be wrong. (laughs) And so once an idea is in there and we have this way of seeing the world, if your therapist or your team is trying to ask you to see it in a different way and challenge those thoughts, like actively challenge these cognitive distortions, we 
we don't like that. <laughs> we want to kind of stay that way. We like staying in consistency. We like staying in our pattern. And again, it comes back to control. We want to be in control of our thoughts. And and I think the the second part to that is not just that we don't like being wrong, but also this is a mental disorder. And I think that's another thing that people tend to forget is that, you know, people may have started off by choosing or making these actions or behaviors that aligned with the eating disorder. And yes, they are the person doing those behaviors. But what I always say is you didn't go to the grocery store and say, I want an eating disorder and take it home with you. And you can't just return it, right? It's not a simple transaction like that. Unfortunately, it becomes a way that your brain thinks. And if we kind of come down to like the neuroscience of it, thinking about like neural pathways, once you build those pathways of like, when I feel this way about my body, I have to act on it either through restriction or through purging or through various other behaviors that exist in eating disorders over exercising, it becomes like that's the right way to do it. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, a lot of times it's a slight side tangent, but a lot of times I see a comorbidity with OCD as well, where it becomes about this like just right feeling. I have to do this and it becomes compulsive to the point where I don't really have another choice. And so asking somebody to not do that can feel inherently wrong. And sometimes that not just right feeling is hard to explain to somebody who doesn't experience it, but it really is like everything feels fundamentally wrong when you're in the process of recovery, because we're asking you to do something that's like the antithesis of what your mind is telling you is right or what you should be doing. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense, both from like that neurological or physiological side. And then also just how we as humans operate with not wanting to be wrong or not wanting to have to undo the years of work we've done with falling down these rabbit holes. It makes sense that recovery is such a long process for most people. Yeah. Um, do you feel like, because the optimist in me is like, if we can wire those neural pathways a certain way to essentially like enable that eating disorder train of thought and behavior and like support it. As we do that work in recovery, we, I'm assuming, can see people rewrite more positive and supportive pathways, right? It just takes time. Absolutely. I think yeah. the time is the biggest piece. I think, you know, when you think about the course of treatment, depending on where you enter, I mean, I have clients who come in, like I mentioned, and think it's going to be a few short weeks and they'll be back to school. And obviously it's, it, it can be a rude awakening because sometimes it's years long process of, of yeah. recovery. And so, you know, sometimes it's not just like changing the thoughts, but, you know, they have a lot of like medical implications as well that, you know, we're waiting for vitals to normalize again. We're waiting for labs to improve again. We're waiting for menstrual cycles to come back. I know that's a lot of the work that you're doing. Like that stuff takes time. And it also takes repetition, it takes practice, it takes failure, it takes just so much of this that can take a significant amount of time. And if you're in residential treatment, if, if that's the extent to which the eating disorder goes, you know, that can be 10 to 12 weeks and then stepping down to a partial program and an intensive outpatient, those can be another 12 weeks. And so then you're looking at a, a good half a year and change before you even get back into your outpatient work. And that's when you can resume, you know, school work and, and life. So yeah, it's certainly challenging, but it is absolutely possible. And I think that's the thing that like us as providers, both myself, with you and, and the folks that I work with, like our job is really to hold that hope for clients of like, you can do this, like we've seen it before and you'll be able to do this. It's going to be so hard, 
but we'll hold the hope for you on the days that you don't feel like you can do that for yourself. Yeah, I think that is such an important piece of the work that we do because when you are in the thick of it, it can be really hard to understand how does this get better? When does it get better? What does it look like? And so to have other people who have either walked through it themselves or walked other people through it. Yeah, some days you're not going to be able to see the forest for the trees, but like you will get there. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So obviously recovery is, you know, really complex and difficult and it requires a certain level of resources and all of that. And so something that I love to do with my social media is speaking more about, you know, some of the non-diet principles and trying to provide some counter messaging, because again, that is not the only way someone ends up with a bad relationship with food and body or a clinically diagnosed eating disorder. However, I'm like, whatever I can do, right? So (laughs) are there any particular ways or kind of, you know, focus points that you find really valuable in terms of building resilience to kind of help, you know, I don't want to say shelter ourselves, right? But like decrease the likelihood that this is where we end up with our food and body relationship. Absolutely. And I appreciate that you brought up your interaction with social media because I'm always so grateful for it. And the counter arguments I think are huge because in building the the challenges to the cognitive distortions that are in their minds are kind of getting us unstuck, if you will. We need evidence to show ourselves that there's another way. And so I think absolutely building stuff on social media and putting out information on social media is is certainly helpful. So I kind of had broke it down into like four different pillars, if you will, for resiliency, um, one of which was the mindful social media use. So I'll start there. I think unfollowing the kind of like models that you follow just for the sake of aesthetic. And there might be some of them that, you know, you want to stay following. And I understand that. And also we have to recognize like the passive information that we're receiving from that. So if you're following someone specifically because of their ideal body or you appreciate the way that they look or their aesthetic, right? it's passively sending us a message and we're passively absorbing comparison. In a previous research study found that even just five minutes of social media engagement for college females like decreased body image satisfaction. And so we don't even realize like how much of a short amount of time. And if you think about how often we're on social media, you're absorbing that pretty, pretty frequently. I think the other one that becomes tricky that I hear a lot is like, well, what if my friends are posting these things? (laughs) And so what I would recommend is instead of the unfollowing and the why do you do that and the the arguments or whatever that might cause, you can just mute them. You can mute their stories. You can mute the things from popping up in that space. That way it's not kind of interrupting you and your day to day and you don't, you're not having that passive comparison, but you still have that interaction. You can still go to them. You can still interact with their page and such like that. So I think the mute is a very powerful one. There's also a new way that Instagram just released that you can actually block certain words from showing up that's in the information and the settings tab. So you can actually type in like if you don't want things with diet to pop up, you can actually block that or topics related to that. Then the last thing I would suggest is always diversifying your page with anti-diet language also with bodies, I think is a really important thing. Like following people who don't look like you, following people who do exist in larger bodies, I think is a beautiful thing having body diversity. Someone that I love for this is Kenzie Brenna, and I can send these to you as well to to post with the episode. Mick Zazon is a wonderful person that I follow. She posts a lot about imperfect skin, her own eating disorder recovery, her journey with PCOS and how that's impacted her body image. 
I think Remy Bader is a large one, both on TikTok and Instagram, where she kind of is a commentary on inclusive sizing in the fashion industry. She's also somebody who is in recovery herself. Alyssa Valentino Studio is actually an artist, and she kind of changes the view that we have of the female body through art. I absolutely adore her work and just wonderful to look at. And then Diet Culture Rebel is another anti-diet dietitian like yourself on there who's wonderful. And then I would also recommend Sonia Renee Taylor. This She's both on social media, but also her book, The Body is Not an Apology, is like one of my ultimate favorite and also actually leads into the second one that I was going to say about building resiliency is body image work, doing your own body image work. Sonia Renee Taylor has a workbook that goes along with The Body is Not an Apology, where she asks you to kind of like self-explore your relationship with your body. And so that can be a really wonderful resource, even if you're not meeting with a therapist or kind of processing these things on your own. It's a great kind of tool for at home. But I think just like on a day-to-day basis in the body image work, kind of just asking yourself what you're feeling. That sounds so simple, but a lot of the times, like a question that I'll ask to myself when I notice myself struggling with, with body image stuff, because yes, I am human too, as an eating disorder therapist, I also struggle with body image on different days, right? But I often ask myself, like, what might I be putting on my body so that it's tangible, right? Am I anxious about this thing at work that's coming up and I'm anxious about this like personal interaction that I had with a friend? I'm anxious about you know, a variety of different things, but like I'm turning to to my body to be frustrated about and all of a sudden, oh, and I don't feel good in my body. I need to go work out. Right. <laughs> so just yeah. asking myself, like, what am I feeling? What are some things that I could name about myself that I like that are non-physical, that are qualities of myself that I appreciate? And it can feel really funny. The gratitude work for yourself can be a little strange in the beginning, but I think being able to acknowledge what those things are, are really important. I think also in the body image work, being able to have go-to outfits that you feel comfortable in. A lot of the times we put on things and then we don't feel comfortable wearing them or we don't like how we look or feel in, in that. And changing what you're wearing can be so powerful. It can help you feel so much more comfortable in your skin and in your body and, and helps you kind of move on and into your day a little bit quicker. And then my last one also related to clothes would be kind of like donating or selling clothes that you don't feel good in. I am guilty in my past of holding on to that pair of jeans thinking I can't wait until I fit in these again or using them as a a goal. Get rid of them. It's not healthy for you because every time you're opening your closet, you're going to see them and you're having that experience of like, oh, there are those jeans. It's another day I don't, you know, fit in them. So it can be challenging to navigate that when you're just trying to get ready for work or whatever. And then Two other things in terms of resiliency that I wanted to mention is getting to know your environment. And what I mean by that is like once you start seeing the diet culture and where it is, you'll notice it's everywhere. (laughs) So being being becoming observant, notice in the grocery store. It's a classic example that I usually use is Trader Joe's, which I absolutely love. Um, but in their frozen section, right? Like just for an example, there's like two mac and cheeses. They're right next to each other, and one says guilt free. And I'm like, wait a minute, (laughs) this mac and cheese is telling me if I should feel guilty or not. That's pretty messed up. So once you start seeing it, becoming more aware of it, billboard signs, you'll see them on the side of the road about different diet culture related things, noticing and becoming observant at family dinner or friend conversations, how much of your conversation is absorbed by talking about other people's bodies or your own body or putting yourself down. 
So I think, you know, once you become aware of that, that leads to the last one of becoming an advocate. So when you're sitting at, with your friends, when you're sitting at the table with your family, um, if you're in your gym, you know, you hear certain things, can you call it out? Can you say like, hey, let's not, or, you know, you can make a joke out of it, gently doing this, making a point of it. It helps other people as well, because there's a good chance that other people are also thinking a similar thing about themselves or, or being more hard on themselves in the way that you might. And you never know what that small moment of language and kind of calling that out or switching the topic could do. Because like you said in the beginning about this person that was coming to your spin class, like we don't know what everyone is experiencing, even the closest people in our lives. Yeah. And I think, you know, leading back into like your own social media, like if you can share and you find some of these like social media pages, part of being an advocate might also be reposting body diversity or anti-diet stuff on social media, even if it's passive, somebody's absorbing that. So those are kind of my my four different things. So the, the social media use, your own kind of body image work, working on body trust, trusting your body again, getting to know your environment, becoming observant of it, and then also becoming an advocate as well, which I think is a large part of the work that you and I do outside of our day-to-day -to -day too. Yeah. And I love, I think, you know, those first three are so much more like internally focused, like how am I moving through the world? Obviously, other people are affecting me, but I can kind of work on those things in my own bubble and not be vulnerable if I don't feel ready. Yes. But then when you do start to get to a point where you feel a little bit more confident with these ideas, I notice that even like for myself, when I do that kind of fourth step, right, being an advocate in some sort of way. It solidifies those yeah. concepts so much more, right? It's like you actually showing up in that way and saying, hey, this is not working. Or I had conversations with other fitness instructors where I'm like, when they ask for feedback, I'm like, okay, I noticed this, right? Putting a voice to it and explaining it and putting yourself behind those concepts in front of other people. Yeah. really like drives it home in your own brain too, which I think is Absolutely. really cool. It's scary to get to that step, but when you <laughs> yeah. do, and like it helps you so much to progress so much more. Yeah, it's really liberating. And I actually think, you know, I've had past clients say, you know, how did you get to the point where you feel like you can yeah. make disordered decisions around exercise and food? And I really think exactly what you're talking about is what helped me. It was like, okay, I know I want to get to this point start posting about it, start talking about it. And a lot of what I was doing during COVID was doing that. And I, I still, you know, I'm a year and a half into work at residential right now, but I, I think about things that I was posting then and I'm like, oh, that maybe wasn't the best thing to post sometimes. Right. But I think what was helpful was like, I was learning in that process. I was sharing, I was understanding how I relate to other people. I was understanding I wasn't the only person experiencing this. And that solidifying that for myself was so important in my work. And you get that kind of like external validation of like, wow, that's so great that you can see yourself in that way. It makes me want to do that too. And then you kind of start growing your little army against <laughs> diet culture, if you will. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And like having it be more outward facing, even if you're not comfortable saying like, this is exactly what's happened to me. Like you said, maybe sharing something from other accounts mm -hmm. or doing it in more of a one-on-one -on -one setting when you see something that like really doesn't feel yeah. good. 
Um, yep. it, it really does. It helps a lot. Yeah. So, and, yeah. and similarly to like how I was describing, like we're passively absorbing comparison with others on social media in a negative way, you also passively absorb things in a positive way. So if you're doing that kind of internal body work for yourself and kind of doing it on your own, maybe you're doing the workbook or, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. or whatnot, like I think that then kind of bleeds into the space of the people around you. And I think that's what the work I was talking about with personal trainers is it's like if you can do the body image work because I think a lot of them came in and were like gonna thought they were gonna learn how to talk to their clients about body image and to their surprise I was like no we're actually gonna talk about your body image (laughs) yes they're like what yeah because it's that it's that ripple effect right the way that you feel about yourself is going to then impact the people around you someone else that I absolutely love and adore is Cara Duval Pilates she was a previous dancer of her own and now has her own platform called Range and I totally admire her and she's just done so much of her own body image work and she talks pretty openly about that as growing up a, a ballet dancer and in that environment and I I refer my clients with eating disorders to her um, often because of the language that she's using. And she gets a lot of the same feedback that you were talking about of like, I didn't even realize like some of these small cues that I was using, but it's just like inherently kind of part of you and you become the advocate just in living your everyday life. And you become this person that is like accepting of, of all bodies and body diversity. And so I'm just so grateful for people who really absorb that and live it as part of their their mission because you become so passionately about it (laughs) yeah I I completely agree and then it also gets to a point right where you aren't having to actively think about these things as much it's just become how you see the world how you interact and you can look back five years from now and be like wow that stuff doesn't take up a lot of real estate in my brain anymore but I'm still protecting myself building a better relationship with myself and I'm helping whoever I interact with yeah so yeah yeah absolutely Yeah. One final question so that then you can get onto your busy day. But one thing that I see as a sticking point sometimes with clients or people that message us on Instagram is I am not diagnosed with any disorder. Like I've never, you know, been diagnosed, but like these things do cause me a lot of distress. Yeah. Do you ever encounter those kinds of things, like those thoughts where people are like, I don't know if I need this help or like if my struggle is valid, what would you say to somebody like that? Because I find that to be a really hard place to be sitting. Yeah, I think for some, this I think becomes like a larger conversation about diagnoses and, you know, the DSM or the Diagnostic Statistical Manual or whatever that we use to put a label on things. It's used mostly because of insurance, right? (laughs) Insurance needs to be able to have a code that they can plug in and say, this is what we're covering for. And this is what we typically think you need for that type of stay, right? But I think that the diagnosis itself doesn't actually really matter so much. I don't think it's as important. So I think if somebody is kind of on the fence of like, I'm not really sure if I have this or not. And I would move away from whether that you actually have the diagnosis before to get help. I think you can be with someone that just feels distressed by food or body image and and get support. And I think that is another big piece of, you know, getting into the space of of prevention rather than, you know, having to do the treatment after. There's no wrong time to get support. I think building better relationship with yourself and food is is always a wonderful thing. So I think what I would say is that 
you don't need the diagnosis. You don't need to know exactly. You don't have to have the concrete. I definitely have X, Y, and Z in order to get help. I think, you know, finding a therapist and just kind of talking about body image and exploring what that space is like for you, finding a dietitian to work with and being like, I feel really distressed by my relationship with food. That is enough in itself to go talk with someone like yourself, right? So I don't know if that fully answers your question, but those are kind of the first things that that pop into my mind. No, I love that because I I do reiterate that to people a lot. But I think coming from you know the point of view of a therapist and you're working really more on the mental and emotional side of it yeah. too, I think it's really validating to hear. It does not yeah. matter like mm-hmm. if there's a label in your chart or not, or if you've ever seen somebody who's you know proposed the idea that you might meet the criteria. If you have these types of feelings or if it's making it hard to navigate your life, it's super valid. And yeah, start working on it now. You don't have to wait for it to get worse or to right. lose weight or to have an altered lap value. Like it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't matter. So yeah, yeah. I would actually yeah. encourage you don't wait. <laughs> right. You know, you, you get harder. Mm-hmm. And you could those things. It's those back to those neural pathways. Like you are just yes. reinforcing them the longer we stay in it. So And I think also, you know, if you recognize a friend struggling with it too, if you can gently approach it and be like, hey, I don't want you to feel this distressed about food when we go out. Follow this Instagram account or like this is a dietitian that seems really great. I wonder if you'd be interested or like, is there any way I can help you with that? Do you want to like go out to eat together and we can kind of self-support each other? So I do think there's also an element of uh, looking out for your friends because I think a lot of times, um, I think just about everyone at least knows someone with either an eating disorder or, or disordered eating or an undiagnosed eating disorder. It's it's very, very common. And I think, honestly, they're probably underdiagnosed, if anything. So definitely looking out for your pals as well and family. I love that. Yeah. yeah. It's hard to do it alone. So yeah. yeah. Well, if you don't mind, if you can just tell everybody where they can find you and kind of, you know, what is going on for you in the online space right now. And absolutely. And that'll be it. Yeah. Absolutely. So you can find me on Instagram at Moving with Marina. I also have a website, movingwithmarina.com. I do offer workshops for studios, whether it be a gym, whether it be a spin studio, yoga studio, and I can come in and talk with your instructors. I am in the Boston area, but like we have talked, we can also do them virtually too, which was part of the beauty and the pain of COVID was being able to connect with with people across the country and doing some of this work. And I, I love to chat. I love to connect. So I'm happy to just kind of share some information over social media but that's where you can find me it's at moving with marina and you can also send me an email at marina at movingwithmarina.com if you have questions about anything that i've talked about or dance movement therapy i'm a big proponent of of sharing the knowledge too awesome well thank you so much for everything you shared today and we'll make sure to link the instagram accounts that you mentioned and all of your contact information too because I have loved learning from you. And like, even as somebody who was like, I've done a lot of learning already and I've done the professional side, there's still always more you can expose yourself to. So I so appreciate what you do. Thank you. And I I greatly appreciate everything that you do. And and I love learning from you. And thank you for, for having me. This has been great. Absolutely. 